Welcome to the weekly podcast of Calvary Chapel, South London, a church where the truth of God's word meets and transforms the reality of our daily lives. We hope you are impacted by this week's teaching. Thank you, and we are delighted, Lord, even to know the goodness and the grace that you've shown us through your Son and through yourself. You indeed are good, and the testimony about you is true, that the law came through Moses, and that grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Lord, I just pray that um, even in our day, having heard this message which was at first preached and declared plainly by Christ and before him by the prophets and even today is still declared by your servants in the church, Lord, I pray that for every one of us we will walk in this grace. We'll walk in this grace knowing, Lord God, that indeed your grace abounds toward us. Your grace is just shown toward us in the place where there was constraining law that only shows us where we missed the mark, but doesn't really give us a way to come close to you. So Father, receive us again. And I pray that even as we look at your word, as we continue to look at your word today, Lord, you will teach us. You will instruct us. You will indeed um, be the one who speaks to each and every individual sitting here and even to me as I teach or as I preach out of your word. Father, again, thank you. We really do thank you for your grace toward us. And may our hearts be lifted. May our hearts be gladdened. May we rejoice even as we see how gracious you are. Thank you, Heavenly Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning or good afternoon, church. Um, We're continuing in our study through the book of John. And in the series we've um, titled Superman HD. Um, And I'm sure as you, some of you are, pains to hear now it's not a movie but it's really just a a, a depiction of Jesus a super man superhuman or super natural and human or human and divine as HD depicts there and um, we continue from um where we stopped last week and we're looking to this week in John chapter 5 and verses 1 to 16. Just in opening, I just recall back in the late 70s as a young lad, I remember watching my neighbors. We lived in this compound where we had neighbors with the fence backing onto our compound. And they had land in their compound where they, um, if you like, allotments, what we call them today, where, and, and they went through the process of preparing their allotments to plant crops like corn, cassava, yams. I don't know if everybody's, everybody's familiar with those plants here. Some might be. But then because these plants have tubers, and roots that grew first in the ground, um, or so I think, and um, for the food value that those roots have, these guys would work to get rid of rabbits that have burrowed in the, in the ground. They would work hard to get rid of rabbits, and they would smoke the rabbits out of their burrows. So what you'd see is, They've cleared the ground, cleared all the shrubs, cleared all the weed, and there's these holes in the ground. And what they would do before planting any crops is get 
um, some Kindle, something, some, some Kindle, something that could, could Kindle easily, like dry grass. Some of the grass has been cleared and light it up. It would give off quite a lot of smoke and they'd put it down a hole. In a few moments, there'd be smoke coming out of a few other holes in the ground. And depending on how many people are working together, they'd cover up so many holes and just leave one or two open. Now, what happens a few more moments later? The rabbits are scurrying out of the ground. These massive rabbits, not, um, I mean, for the sensitivity of those who have domesticated rabbits, fluffy-eared rabbits, it's, it's not those rabbits, all right? <laughs> I was going to show you a picture of one of them, but these rabbits are massive. And, you know, you don't want to run, you don't, we don't want them to collide into you whilst they're on their way out of those burrows. Trust me. Very sharp teeth. Dangerous too. But um, they would get these rabbits and trap them. Let's stop at that. <laughs> for, the, for, the, for, those, for those sensitivities too. They would trap them. Let's leave it there. Now, you see, as I read through John and seeing the encounters of, between Jesus and the Jews, a term you would see him mention a few times in John, I get the sense that um, John narrates the case for Jesus and makes the case for Jesus, the Son of God, and the case for Jesus, even faith in him leading to eternal life, in a way that's similar to these guys smoking the rabbits out of their ground before they plant anything of value. In the encounter we will see today between Jesus and the Jews, um, there is a smoking out, if you like, of the Jews in this occasion. So our text, in our text for today, which is uh, John chapter 5, verse 1 to 16. Let's turn together uh, to the text, John chapter 5, verse 1 to 16, and see what's going on there. I'm going to be reading from the ESV. Now I want to, I want to invite us all to turn there together as well. I would ordinarily have put the text up on screen. Good? No? Not working? Okay. Use my finger to tap the slides. Okay, no problem. Play. Great. Thank you. All right. There's one of our rabbits. <laughs> They're rabbits. Can you see the size of that rat on that man's, it's, it's on a man's arm. That's not, you wouldn't call that a rat. <laughs> That's a big man's arm, massive. All right. And they will get smoked out of their holes. Now, <laughs> in our text for today, we see. From verse 1, after Jesus, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and the Jews went up to, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of individuals, invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had, been an, who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had, been, he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was a Sabbath. 
So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told Jesus, told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now straight away we see um, that right at the top of the right at the top of, top of the text, John tells us where this is taking place. He sets the atmosphere and sets the context for us. In that, um, he tells us where Jesus is. But as I said earlier on, in this account there is an intentional working of God to glorify Jesus, to glorify Jesus as the Son of God. I mean, the verses we have read introduce a case for the Son of God that is developed further next week. If if you're reading ahead or reading through the, the, the book of John, you will see that this is only part of uh, a, an entire discussion, an entire incident. It's only part, it's just the event, just the miracle that Jesus has performed that precipitates in a big discussion about this guy, this Jesus. Who is he really? Is he the Christ? Is he the one we're looking for? Is this the Christ? We heard this Samaritan woman ask the question a couple of weeks ago. When the Christ comes, well, anyway, we, we, will, we will know like he wasn't the one talking to her. And the whole conversation, the whole discussion is up, not in the air, but it's really up in their faces, in the faces of everyone before whom Jesus presents himself. Only thing is, are people really paying attention? Are they really seeing what God wants to be seen. So, um, last week, where Jesus goes to Galilee and makes provision for one, we see uh, a similar thing occur here. It's intentional that Jesus goes to Jerusalem to reach a very difficult target group. A really difficult target group when you look through the book of John the leaders of his own covenant people. Even today, it's, a, it's still a very easy, easily believed and common belief that Israel is God's nation. True? Something that's still commonly held and it's true. God's covenant people. And here, Jesus is intentionally going to Jerusalem to meet this lot. And... Again, as I just said a moment ago, last week was where Jesus went to Galilee and we heard and listened to the account of how he graciously goes and responds to one among his own people, his home crowd, who he has already attested and testified against saying, a prophet is not without honor except among his own people. But even there he was gracious to heal and grant favor to the official who sought healing for his son. But here, see the intention. He goes to Jerusalem during a feast of the Jews. Now, <laughs> I get this impression about John. He has a way of gathering the whole discussion in a cluster. Uh, I don't know who likes crunching up clusters here. You got clusters of, of cornflakes. I see Yale smiling. You like crunching up clusters. <laughs> you got cornflakes. 
you got nuts, you got honey, you got the whole thing, everything in that cluster. And when you eat that thing, when you bite into it, you know you're really having a crunchy nut cluster. Those of you who, who are, who are, who are, in, who patronize them, you know what I'm talking about. I see nuts at the back there. Yes, Michael. Now, he clusters what he does. He clusters a miracle. The outward working that takes place and then follows it with a discussion, a long and lengthy discussion. And the discussion is not just on the part of Jesus, but also on the part of his disciples, the person who's benefited or been affected by that miracle, and then the leaders of the Jews. So a big cluster there of things going on. And when you read through today's um, text, you see, well, there's really only just the beginning of the discussion. The miracle's there, but just the beginning of the discussion. Now, and the discussion is centered around the identity of Christ again. It's interesting to see the details that he goes into sometimes when he cuts away from the miracle scene and brings you to the discussion among the Jews. Some discussions that are sometimes secret. Secret ones as well as times when the Jewish leaders are trying to assess what their game plan should be now because this miracle or the other has has just been done. But the dialogues with Jesus always seem to leave the Jews in more confusion than at ease. Not because they now see who this person is, but because they have to respond. They have to respond, either by accepting him as Christ or rejecting him otherwise. Thankfully, um, like my neighbors smoking out their rabbits from their farms, Jesus doesn't leave these people steeped in their disbelief. He carries on stoking the embers, looking to get them come out of their burrows, come out of their tradition. He actually drives them till they work. And we will see this as we get towards the end of John. He drives them continually stoking and smoking them out till they get to the point of believing they reject Jesus, but they actually work out the plan and the purpose of God in sending him to the cross to be crucified. Now, John is really doing all of this just to encourage us who also are his readers to believe in Jesus, that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God. So, going into our text in some detail, we see Jesus is not unfamiliar with Passover. He's been there several times with his parents while a child you know and we see we saw earlier in chapter 2 and verse 23 that at one of these feasts of the Jews at Passover in particular because on this occasion we're not told what feast this is um, many believed in his name observing his signs which he was doing note John says many believed in his name He wasn't particular about who they were that believed in his name. From the rest of the passage, you will see it's not necessarily the Jewish leaders all together in unison saying, yay, this is the savior we've been waiting for. Welcome him with arms open wide. Bring him into the temple. Let him sit behind the mercy seat or somewhere there, some place of preeminence. But no, that's not their response or reaction. So, Um, we see Jesus attending this feast of the Jews. And it's not clear what feast this is. But a few things are important to bear in mind. There would be many people there for the feast of the Jews. I mean, they had several feasts. They had Passover. They had um, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles and They had some other feasts, feasts of Purim, which were not necessarily ordained by God, but which they adopted and decided to 
observe, to mark the times when they were delivered from persecution. If you remember the story under the reign of um, King Ahasuerus, delivered by Esther as a, as a queen then in that time in exile. But here, we're not told which feast it is. But one thing is important. There will be lots of people around and there's quite easily a crowd. Well, Jesus was familiar with these feasts. And in this account, John introduces us to something that's going on and a particular miracle. But before we do, uh, before we talk about this miracle, I just want to bring something to our attention and let's just, you know, get this um, out of the way, so to speak. Now, if you were reading along with, with us as we read the um, ESV, I don't know how many, how many people here read, read from the King James Version? Let me see those hands. Do you say most? In the past. Oh, I see. <laughs> All right. You might have noticed a variant. You might have noticed there was a difference in the, in the text. So, as you can see up on the screen, where you get in the King James Version, there's a verse 3, verse 4, and then we get to verse 5. In the, in the ESV, there's just verse 3, and then skips on to verse 5. Now, what's this about? I want to just bring this to our attention, knowing that we don't all read the same versions of the Bible. In our day, this is important to note. Um, talking about the origins of the Bible, putting it in simple terms, the earliest New Testament scriptures, so say the earliest times any of these things we read in the New Testament, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 1st Timothy, 2nd Timothy, Ephesians, the earliest dates for any of these things where they were originally written was about 55 AD. So, say about 20, 25 years after Jesus Christ passing or ascending to glory. Um, now, we can see from Scripture again that some of these are personal letters like 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Philip, uh, Philemon, James. Some of these are personal letters addressed to individuals. Some also are letters addressed to churches, 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, um, Ephesians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. But, and they're wide-ranging in the type of things they cover. But let's call these for now autographs. Okay? So say like um, Esso's released an album and he signs one of them for you. Here you go. So, Signed by Paul or the other author, or any of the authors in their own hands. If you wanted to get a copy or get hold of those letters to the churches back then, um, way before the printing presses, way before personal computers, smartphones, Google, and photocopiers, you would have to get a scribe to copy them by hand for you. So let's call those copies manuscripts. Now, in the process of copying the manuscripts, what do you imagine happens or occurs? Mistakes, errors, errors of trans transposition, so reversing the order of words because of familiarity. You could, I could say, Marseille, can you tell... Uh, can you tell Mel some, so, so and so for me? You would tell Mel what I told you to tell her, but you probably just tell her what I meant to say, not in the exact same words. So you find errors of um, different kinds, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this this morning. We will talk more about this on Thursday. Um, but errors of different types of curds. And these were way before anything like Dan Brown could imagine <laughs> um, 
before the origins of the Catholic Church. So put, that, put those conspiracy theories to death right there. They occurred really, really early. Um, and you couldn't possibly get hold of all the copies that were, all the copying being done. Imagine, first day of the church, 3,000 people were added to the church. And then a couple of days, a couple of accounts later, a few more thousand. And these people all need to get to know the Lord. And Paul writes a letter. Can you imagine the amount of copying that had been going on early on in the days, in the early days of the church? So all this is going on. And if it were at all possible, if it, if it were going to be at all possible to doctor the scripture, doctor the Bible that we have today in order to keep the church ignorant or keep the, if you like, black man, because I've heard that kind of thing in Lewisham. (laughs) Oh, that Bible is a white man Bible, don't you know? You know, if that kind of thing were going to be possible, you had to have the the, the mechanism to capture all those copies, stop people from copying Doctor it and then release a version that you want to authorize. Same goes for King James. He, he couldn't possibly stop all that. He couldn't possibly um, uh, doctor the Bible so that we have a version that he wants us to have. These things went on way, way, way before these guys uh, came to produce these versions of the Bible. So, but some might be worried and concerned, man. That means we can't be too sure about the Bibles that we have. A popular claim again out there by our brothers of Muslim faith. Well, the impact of these variants, the impact of these variants, they're known. There are variants and they are known. And scholars do us well to point them out in footnoting good Bibles. Um, their nature is such that they do not affect the core, affect core Christian doctrine, and less than one percent, less than one percent of them are of effect to change the meaning of New Testament text. And um, or even suggests that the original New Testament text is different from what we have today. Let me say that again. So in efforts to try to get, get us back to what the original texts were actually like, loads of variants are known. I think there are only about 400,000 variants of in 5,000 manuscripts that we have today. Um, but only 1% of them are known to have any importance or any significance at all to the meaning of the text and to the content of the text. They don't affect core doctrine. They don't affect um, our Bibles that we have. They don't affect Christian truth. Now, we get our Bibles today from the earliest remaining manuscripts. That's the earliest remaining copies. And over 5,000 of them in number exist and more are being found and still to be catalogued. Now, there is also a, a discipline <laughs> um, from which we have scholars who carefully and strenuously look into manuscripts and external sources as well, just to make sure that, I mean, with the goal of getting us closer to exactly what the original documents contained. Now, what does that mean for us? Where we see comments like these in our Bible. So, for example, in John chapter 5 and verse 4, you would see things like that in the footnotes in your Bible. Some manuscripts insert wholly or in part, waiting for the moving of the water for an angel of the Lord and blah, blah, blah. When you see that, it's like when you buy a legit film or legit DVD from iTunes or Amazon, and you watch the film, and then you get the, <laughs> I'm sure we all know about that, <laughs> and then you get the director's extras, 
That's what the variants are like for us. You know, you get the director's extras. You're still getting the whole thing, the full thing, but you get the extras which the director decided to leave out. All right. So when you read comments like that, yeah, you can rest assured you got a good Bible in hand. Now, so we're getting to, uh, we, we are indeed getting the benefit of all the hard work of faithful men of God who strain all the more to get the fluff out of the way so we can uh, have hold of scripture that is inerrant. There's no error there. Now, what's clear about this passage in, as we look at it is that this guy who Jesus meets, um, he's right there waiting and he holds to a belief. He holds to a belief that, hey, this water that I'm waiting around here, uh, it gets stirred, it gets disturbed. It gets troubled because Jesus asks him a question. He asks him a question. He sees the guy's been there for a while and he asks him a question. Um, do you want to be healed? But what's clear, looking at verse 7, still talking about um, variance, is that there is, he believes that the water gets stirred and then the first person in the water gets healed. Does this mean that God has anything to do with that? It being there in the Bible? Could we develop some doctrine from that? And when anything even further from that truth, but similar to that kind of belief that the man held occurs, we can jump on the bandwagon in search of healing? Does it mean we can do that? Well, believe it or not, it happens. Um, I was going to, again, uh, unfortunately I'm not tech, tech savvy like um, Pastor Rob. I was just going to show a short clip of a video. Something occurred um, last November in a country I know very well. And uh, as it turns out, this dry portion of land dry portion of land some cattle rearers and nomads had just gone through the place and they hear what sounds like an explosion as somebody described it an explosion earth tremors obviously and then they come back and wow there's a lake there all of a sudden and what do you know as the story goes one of them saw the water and he told his fellow nomads hey this is the water they prophesied about in that Muslim quarter in Jerusalem, in that pool of Bethesda. And took a bottle of water, took to his brother who was blind, the guy had a drink of it, received his sight. So the story goes. And before you know what's happening, it's a beehive of activity. The water in the report stunk to high heavens. But it would not stop people stripping down to their, for decency, gym jams <laughs> and diving into the water and proclaiming and de declaring they're healed, they're well, bringing their lame, bringing their diseased, bringing their ill, without a care in the world for what they could catch out of there. But the belief was, hey, we're going to get healed. And we're going to get healed in Jesus' name. Can we do that with the word? Can we do that? You see, um, let's, let me just stop at the fact that the guy decides he wants to hold on to the belief that he will get healed in that water. Jesus notes and observes in verse 5 that he's been there for 38 years. Jesus knew he'd been there for a long time. 
I asked the question, how did Jesus know he had been there a long time? See, there are many plausible explanations. Just like, I mean, if you're still relatively young, maybe in your 40s, 50s, you have experience to know that, yes, like some guy in the video clip to do with that, those pictures said, we sometimes have challenges in life. You know, life challenges and this person's been going through this and the other. We live with people who have long-term challenges, health challenges, as we were just talking about and praying about this morning. And as we've seen through our very brief, very short history as a church. Um, and my prayer and my desire is that, you know, we're all looking to God still, trusting God for these to be resolved, praying to God for these to be resolved in his sovereign will. Could his disciples have told him about this guy? Possibly. Um, and then again, even you, just living in your own life experience, you, you may have noted and seen such things, even right there in your very own families. But when I think about it, at least I know a man who has had to have parental care all the 40 plus years of his life. And he still needs care. He still needs care. Thankfully, I mean, although this is a society where it seems to care for those less able to care for themselves, um, we have an opportunity to get involved. Hopefully we're not ones who would just put those responsibilities to one side and not concern or bother or care ourselves for those who have need of care from us. Is that something we could all do and do well to have interest and participate in personally? But then, of course, most plausible is the fact that Jesus is God, who is all-knowing. He knows all things. And we're told, we're not told how, but John is, is talking about one who he has told us already in the beginning is the Word made flesh. The Word who was with God, who was God, who became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus could also know this himself, being God in the flesh. So, he said to him, do you want to be healed? And the man answered, Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred. And while I'm going down, another steps down before me. Then Jesus does this thing that John attests to in no minced words. Verse 8. Jesus said to him, what did he say? Get up and take up your mat and walk. I'll tell you something. That guy wasn't just there slouching and having a nap under the colonnades by the pool. He wasn't just being a lout and wanting people's sympathy. He could not do anything about his condition. Just like we could not do anything about saving ourselves. If God did not send a savior to us, if God did not come to save us, he could not do anything. But you see, at the commandment of him who created everything, <laughs> whew, I can't, I, I can't, I really can't comprehend that, that power. I don't know if you can. I can't comprehend the power. I can't understand it. The people with Jesus, with Jesus present physically said, what, what, what kind of, what new doctrine is this? He even commands the waves and they answer him? He commands the sea and it, and it obeys? I get in the catch of fish, Peter goes, wow, go away from me. I'm a sinful man. But at once, the man does not have a choice but to answer, but to respond. And verse 9 tells us, 
And once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Last week we saw Jesus responding to the appeal from that official from Capernaum for his son. And he told him, go, (laughs) your son's well. He didn't say, be well, son. He just said, go, your son's well. And here, that power again is displayed. Is this the Christ or what? I pray, honestly, that when we read scripture, we don't get too familiar with it. We don't get so familiar because we are in Christ. Else we become like the guys who we'll meet in a few moments. Who have become so familiar with God that they see God and don't recognize him. Well, question, does Jesus have power to heal? Yes, he does. Does Jesus answer prayers still? Does he invite us to pray? What are we enjoined to do? Is anyone afflicted? Let him Hello? I thought I was the only one here. And you see, what's John do? What's Jesus doing here? Or what's John doing here? Again, as as I say, um, it's interesting to note and understand well the purposes of the miracles that John highlights and brings out. Also, the purposes of the miracles that are highlighted in the New Testament and all of the Bible. A theme that continues in this, in, in this discourse, as from last week, is that God is sovereign. And God does what he will do to bring about his purposes. In John, that's the issue of um, highlighting the deity of Jesus to a lost and unbelieving people. See, Looking back at this encounter, you can't really find much of a direct answer from this man. Because the question asked him is, do you want to be healed? We don't quite get an answer. But we see that God's purposes are still paramount in what God is doing here. So much so that... um, we get inklings and highlight of this, and I refer to an account that Luke gives just after Jesus is being baptized. Just after he's been baptized, he enters into the synagogue and he reads an account telling the people how the Spirit of the Lord is upon him to proclaim good news, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. The people are amazed. Wow, this guy, isn't this Joseph's son? Carpenter's son? And he brings this to their attention and he says, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his own town. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. And when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon a woman who was a widow and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of prophet Elisha and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian when they heard these signs uh, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff these guys were vexed because Jesus is more or less saying In spite of you loving the sermon, you love the word I've just read. But hey, I'm not even kidding myself that you would that you actually believe what I've just read to you. That the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to declare and do all these things that God has appointed, that you should know. So, same purpose, same intention. And John is doing this again to bear witness to this son and to this one who is indeed the son of God. 
You can find the account of um, the, this the, of of Elijah and that widow in First Kings seventeen. Now, we see here in John so far a couple of things that God's doing, even in revealing Jesus Christ to the people He's revealed Himself to. You remember back at the well with this Samaritan woman. What does Jesus offer her? He offers her living water. She's going to fetch water, just physical, literal water to drink. But he offers her living water. It may be a silly question, but that's not physical water, is it? Spiritual stuff he's offering. Again, revealing himself and who he is, the Christ of God to her she was a samaritan not a jew not among the leaders of god's people what's he doing this for to spite the jews what's he doing this for to draw them to to jealousy to get vexed or get upset about the christ coming from other than their rank or showing himself to other than their rank as well in John 6.32, which we'll get to later, <laughs> there's a crowd who gather back to Jesus again after they have been fed. A crowd of over 5,000 fed with bread and fish to their satisfaction, to their fill with leftovers. And they come back to Jesus looking for more. But what does he offer? He doesn't offer them more bread. All this to say, in these accounts that we see of God healing, of God showing Christ to, showing Jesus to be the Son of God, showing Jesus to be all powerful and able to heal, it's evidently not for the sakes of the miracles themselves, not for the sakes of the healings themselves. Because think about it. All right. We're praying about healing right now. We get healed and Jesus tarries or Jesus delays in returning to take us to himself. Which of, which of us will still be here in another 200 years? Let me see your hand up. 200 years. Physically, right? <laughs> oh, no, none of us. He's offering more than we can think or imagine, Jesus says and declares, I have all that came before me were thieves, robbers, but I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. It's not life as we know it. It's more than that. I don't know if you can conceive of that or imagine that. Well, the purposes of which he's doing these things are redemptive. They're spiritual. They're to save us. And to bring us salvation, not merely in that removing physical ailment. That's to say that Jesus does heal. He does heal. But that's not where he calls us to. Just to come receive healing. And why has God chosen to do this? He picks up this man to show God's deity in Christ. And should we have issue with that? Him choosing to heal this guy. Who doesn't really give any specific answer anyway. Because I read through and I thought, dude, you didn't really say you wanted to, be get, to get well, did you? I didn't see him say he wanted to get well. But I imagine he would have wanted to get well. And, well, we see he is healed. He gets up, takes up his mat, and he walks. And at this point, John's finished telling us about the miracle. He's finished telling us about the miracle itself. Part of the cluster. Now, this is Israel where there's been a famine of God's word for about 400, and 400 plus years. From Malachi onto the times of Jesus now. And what's the response this miracle gets? <laughs> what is the response this miracle gets? Verse 10. The Jews said to the man who had been healed. It's the Sabbath. 
it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. And I'm thinking, hold on. What does the Sabbath really say? What does the, what's the law of the Sabbath? God calls the people and urges them, six days you shall labor and do all your work. All your work. This guy, as far as I'm aware, hasn't worked for 38 years. <laughs> Unless he was weaving baskets or something. Or weaving mats. And he picks up his mat. Think about it. They, 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 they just totally dissed the healing. The fact that this guy was healed. They didn't even recognize him. This is that guy who sits in... The guy who sits in the, one of those colonnades, but no, none of that. Totally dissed it. And I know I'm I'm kind of like raking those guys over, but you know our disposition to those who are poor, who are oppressed, who are ill, can easily be like this. Yeah, it must be because of some sin or something they've done wrong. It must be because of something that, man, something, some, some, some ancestral, and, that's, and those beliefs are held out there. It must be some ancestral curse or some ancestral bondage. It needs deliverance. All them kinds of things. We can easily be that. We can very easily be that. But, and we can respond religiously. So, bro, when was the last time you did some devotions? <laughs> Have you prayed this week? Have you prayed this month? Do you give? Do you help people out? We can easily throw these things in the front of this guy who takes the first steps in 38 years that grace has granted to him. The one who's full of grace and truth comes and gives him the grace to stand, to walk, to pick up his mat. And the law is laid before him again to cause him to stumble. I mean, straight away he's challenged for carrying his mat. Wow. Well, we can easily be like that. But what is Jesus' response? Like I said, this will be fully developed next week. It will be fully developed next week. But you can't um, ignore the fact that in our passage, in our text today, where this guy's been challenged and accosted about carrying his mat. Jesus becomes the fall guy all of a sudden. What does he say? He answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who's the man that said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now he's the guy taking the persecution. He's the guy taking the persecution for being, for walking in the grace of God. I don't know if you've been there. You've experienced something of the goodness of God in your life. You've received an answer to prayer and you're bubbling over, overflowing with joy for what God has done. You're singing, perhaps, and you don't even know it. And somebody next to you at work says, hey, what's that song? What are you singing? Is our immediate reaction straight away to just, oh, I'm sorry, and zip it and keep it quiet because my faith belongs in my closet not out there in front of everyone um, he is challenged and he points to Jesus but he doesn't know who Jesus is and he says there's someone else who um, asked him to do this but he didn't know who Jesus was Okay, He didn't know who it was because Jesus had withdrawn and there was a crowd in that place. But here's the good thing again. 
In grace, Jesus does not leave him alone. He doesn't leave him alone. Remember I said to you, to us at, at the start, this is intentional. This is a miracle done for the sake of showing Jesus off to be the son of God. For a moment I thought, you this poor guy, you just happen to be fodder for the canon here. I thought that. I, I, I don't know, I stand to be corrected, but it seems to me that that's what's happening. Here he is, and this miracle is done. Because similarly, we find um, a similar encounter happen where Jesus heals a guy who was born blind. It's later on in John. I'm probably not going to be teaching that section. Maybe somebody else will be. But this guy's challenge is accosted. People recognize him. Everyone recognizes this is the guy who was born blind. Look at him. He can see. They're sure it's him. And these Jewish leaders who were curious, opposed to Jesus, challenging him at every step of the way, call this guy and query him. Dude, tell us what happened to you. How did he heal you? What happened to your eyes? What did he do to you? A million questions. Like before he could even answer, there's more coming. And they ask his parents, is this your child? Who healed him? What's wrong? You know, and under pressure of, for fear of persecution, for fear of being put out of the synagogues, they point to the son. And unlike this chap, he doesn't turn to say, I don't know who the guy was. And, but instead he challenges these people, do you want to know who it is that healed me? Do you want to be his disciple as well? Do you want to be his disciple? He challenges them to the point where he asks them, where, where they ask him so much. And they said and challenged him, the Jews, they challenged to the point just, just to demonstrate that they did not believe that he had been blind. Hold on, this guy can see in front of you. He was blind, he can see. Are you so blind you can't see that? It's the same sort of thing that's going on here in this account. But if you like, this account is more like a drawing of a line in the sand. Because here Jesus comes intentionally to Jerusalem, carries out this sign on this man, and leaves the Jews in a spin about what is really going on with this guy who was born, uh, who's been invalid for so long a time. Well, he's not left alone. Jesus comes to him and um, assures him. He assures him about continuing or rather, abstaining from sin so that something worse does not happen to him. I just thought, God, what are you pointing out here? What are you pointing out here? Again, this is something that could easily be taken off on a tangent. God knows what the matter was with this man. But can I ask a question? Is there anybody here who's without sin? Or who was without sin before you came to know Christ? Is there any such person just wave both hands in the air? <laughs> See me later. <laughs> but he um, shows grace to us all. If we have come to Christ and come to know this one who is Savior, and come to be made well, being freed from the penalty of sin in the first instance. And in this case, being freed even from the effect of sin. We can walk boldly and freely in grace, in the grace of God, and attest to God's goodness. We can attest to it being sure that Jesus Christ 
is walking right with us as he assures us he would never leave us nor forsake us. He would never leave us nor forsake us. Very quickly, um, whilst it may have been the case that these Jews, these Jewish leaders who opposed Jesus, who challenged this man and drew him to the point of pointing out who it is, Where's the guy who's fallen foul of our law or our tradition? Because remember, he wasn't working. He wasn't breaking the Sabbath. When we really think about it, he hadn't worked. He wasn't working, but he was accused of being that. No grace there. What are these guys really expecting? What did they really want? What did they really hope for from God? And had they paid attention really to see what God was actually doing? We have the benefit of hindsight as I close. We have the benefit of hindsight of reading one, uh, reading a passage in scripture. They took the Sabbath as a rest, literally. A literal rest, a day of rest. Leaving work and not working. Mr. C, you know what we're talking about. In the borough where we work, they have those days of rest, right? And, but here is someone who is introduced and who is being shown among the Jews as the one who actually brings the rest of God to come to pass. So, I'm going to close on this note. While there is a promise of entering into rest that still stands, this is um, just reading from Hebrews. I want, us to, I want to just read this out for us. While the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. These guys had opportunity to see these wondrous things being done before their eyes. I sometimes wonder, if we lived in the days of Jesus Christ and saw the miracles that he did, how would that affect our relationship with God? Would, that, would, it, would, you think, would, would it probably be easier for us to believe in Jesus Christ? And to live like we believed in him? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Some of us might be absolutely surprised at the things we would do to Jesus. Or what we would think about him. But we're called to put our trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. Nothing less. No one less. Because... Where we believe in him, we enter into the rest that he gives us. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. You will find what? Rest for your souls. There's a rest he gives to us. That he held out for these people, but it don't seem like it's getting in there yet but we'll see him smoke them out completely again and again as we go through John. Well, God has spoken of rest for us and it definitely does remain for us to enter into the rest of God. Um, and the charge for us is, especially if hearing about Jesus Christ is a religious thing for us. I know for many years hearing about Jesus Christ was just religious. For, it was being religious for me. I would attend church. I would attend church events, programs. But it don't mean nothing because I don't really believe in that person. I don't really trust in him for eternal life, which he holds out for me. I want to make a charge for us to just really carefully 
consider where we stand with Jesus so that religion doesn't dominate what we believe about him. Rather, faith, trust, an implicit trust in him who is the son of God, Jesus Christ. So let us strive to enter into that rest, trusting in him that none of us may fall. None of us may fall for the same kind of disbelief that we have seen, even in those who evidently see God work things in front of their eyes, but find it hard to believe. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for freeing us from the bondage of religion. I mean, that's the easiest way we can look at it these days. We thank you for freeing us from the bondage of being religious, just observing <laughs> even as it applies to us today, just observing Christian practice, whether right, wrong, misinformed, or misdirected. Lord, bring us rather, however you will do it, to the place where we believe and trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. Nothing less is worth our while as we walk with you. Nothing less is the thing for which you have sent Jesus even to be a savior to die on a cross for us. Lord, guide us and um, let your words enter into our heart even as this continues to unfold. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. To find out more about us, visit our website at calvarychapelsouthlondon.org or find us on Facebook and Twitter at CC South London. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.